welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I am your host, Frank Aragona. This is episode number 132 of the Agro-Innovations Podcast after a two-year hiatus, probably over two years. Uh, I am back to podcasting. Now, the interview I'm on The interview I am about to play for you is an interview with uh, Dr. Elaine Ingham of Soil Food Web, Inc. I'll post a link to her webpage on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. This podcast was recorded in June of 2011. That's how long it has been since I have actually been actively recording episodes for the Agro-Innovations podcast. Uh... I would like to take this opportunity to apologize to Elaine Ingham for not having published this fantastic interview a long time ago. I had a lot of things that prevented me from being able to do so, and I will talk about that at some future date, uh, probably in the following episode of the Agro-Innovations podcast. But for you loyal listeners, many of whom have emailed me over the past two or three years or so, and encouraged me to continue with the podcast. I want to say thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for the support of the podcast. And we are back. So without any further ado, let's get into this interview with uh, Dr. Elaine Ingham about soil microbiology. I will have a little wrap-up. The interview is about 35 minutes, and then there will be a part two uh, next week. But uh, I will wrap up just for a few minutes at the end, and then at some point over the next few episodes or so, I will give folks a little bit of an update on where I'm at and why I'm podcasting again and how you can support the podcast moving forward so that hopefully uh, we don't have another two or three year hiatus in the mix or in the future. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Elaine Ingham. On this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Dr. Elaine Ingham. Dr. Ingham is a soil microbiologist and the founder of the company Soil Food Web. She has written numerous publications, including the USDA's Soil Biology Primer and the Compost Tea Brewing Manual. Dr. Elaine Ingham, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, your career is interesting because it seems that you started out as a microbiologist and have evolved into someone closely associated with soil science. Can you give us a brief tour of your professional life and how the study of microbiology has changed soil science in the process? Um, I started out, uh, did my um, undergraduate work at St. Olaf College in Minnesota, um, concentrated on both biology and chemistry, but a a strong ecology um, bent to that uh, undergraduate career. Uh, went to a um, master's degree at Texas A&M where I worked in marine microbiology uh, looking at the set of microorganisms in the digestive systems of oysters, but very concentrated on environmental samples and why did the microorganisms in some oysters uh, be, why are they almost depauperate, almost nothing there, nothing present. And of course, if you don't have the right sets of microorganisms in the digestive system, whether you're an oyster or you're a human being, um, you're going to have problems digesting things. You can't get the proper nutrition. So you can see where I was, again, still very environmentally, ecologically associated. Um, Moved from there to um, work in soil 
microbiology at Colorado State University where my problem was uh, that was set for me was to try to determine how do you figure out if a fungus in the soil is actually doing anything right now or it's dormant sitting around and maybe someday a thousand years in the future it might become active again. And so started down that pathway of looking at soil and trying to understand soil activity. I worked with a group of organisms at the Natural Resource Ecology Lab at Colorado State University, Dr. Coleman, um, David Coleman, uh, and they were looking at um, why we have so many different kinds of microorganisms, macroorganisms in different places around the world. What are they there for? Who cares whether there's protozoa or good guy nematodes, beneficial nematodes? I mean, everyone knows about the bad guy nematodes, but there's more beneficial nematodes in soil than there are, are root-feeding nematodes, the bad guy nematodes. And if you start looking at the full um, set of nematodes present in the soil, there are more nematodes biomass in soil than there were buffalo biomass on the Great Plains of the United States, for example. So they've got to be doing something. But what are they doing? Why? And do we as human beings care? And so we really, looking at that question, I started to expand from understanding fungal activity, total biomass of fungi, why they're important, and expanded to all the other sets of microorganisms that are present in soil, so bacteria, fungi, protozoa, the three groups of protozoa, flagellates, amoebae, ciliates, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, uh, nematodes, microarthropods, earthworms, uh, mycorrhizal fungi, so trying to understand everything that's going on. And so working with Dave Coleman and his group at Colorado State University, and then when Dave Coleman moved to the University of Georgia, joined him as a um, research fellow. Um, and then from uh, from there, I moved to Oregon State University uh, as an a associate assistant professor first and then an associate professor. Um, looking at, at uh, what the food web should be around the root systems of 140-some different crops in the state of Oregon, going over every um, ecological um, zone um, except for tropical. And so I started branching out from working in just Oregon to working in some tropical systems as well. And as people began to recognize that we had this expertise and we were able to improve productivity, uh, improve fertility, increase the depths that root systems could go and therefore they could get to water in the summertime, they could access the nutrients without having to put on inorganic fertilizers. And as we start seeing those root systems go deeper, having the nutrition that the plant requires, it's no longer susceptible to insect pests or diseases. And as more and more people around the world recognize the importance of these things, and, of course, they wanted me to run all their samples for them, and so we pretty soon started offering uh, that service uh, for a fee at um, uh, Colorado State, uh, State University when I was there, but then very much um, when I was at Oregon State University, and that then branched out into the private laboratory called Soil Food Web Incorporated. So that's, a, that's the whole uh, thing in a nutshell, I guess. Okay, so can you tell us what 
are some of the microorganisms that are present in soil and on the foliage of cultivated plants? Obviously, hearing you talk about this, it sounds like there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of species active in soils, and that varies where you are on the planet. But I wonder if you could give us uh, maybe the elevator speech of what uh, these organisms look like. Uh, Well, bacteria are very small. They... um are on the order of about one to maybe five micrometers in length, uh, one to two micrometers in diameter. Some of them are very are tiny round guys, a little bit larger round guys, rod shaped so they're longer than they are wide. Some of them have flagella and so move themselves through the soil. Others don't have any of their own ability to move around, so they're always catching rides on some other critter. So they need taxi cabs to move them around or or buses or freight trains or something. So in the soil, those different organisms um, that we work with. So bacteria, and there are literally millions. So with uh, bacteria, we haven't uh, even identified all the different species. Um, So for example, people at the Center for Microbial Ecology at Michigan State University James T.G., Dr. James T.G., has said that a woodlot, just like a quarter acre woodlot, would have on the order, we're estimating, a million species of bacteria. And if you look in a teaspoon of the soil or a gram of that soil, there should be on the order of 600 million to 1,000 million individual bacteria spread amongst a million different species. So when you go to the Bible of bacteriology, where we have a list of all of the species of bacteria that we've named, and that only lists 5,000 species. So we don't even really have a very good handle on the different species. And really what we find is more important is that we have the different functional groups present in a soil and not worry so much about you know whether we've got George Carmichael or in you know Oprah Winfrey present in the soil or you know genus species names like that what we need to know do we have the nitrogen fixers do we have those microorganisms that decompose these particular kinds of food materials um, do we have all the ones that uh, will decompose your pesticides that can decompose your waste materials that will um, take your dead leaves and turn them into organic matter So do we have the organisms that will perform all those functions? Well, and that's just bacteria. Now let's go on to fungi. Same thing there. Um, We're looking at potentially millions of species of fungi that we haven't even begun to catalog. But do you really need to know their genus species names? We really need to know do we have species of fungi that operate when it's wet or when it's dry, cold, hot, when we have pine needles or we don't have pine needles, when we've got swamp residues, when we've got um, cedar wood. When So we just need though, all those different functional groups of fungi operating in the soil and, and are they there. Bacteria and fungi are really good at taking nutrients and holding them in their bodies. So there's your nutrient holding capacity. If we're seeing leaching of nutrients from the soil, what you have to come to the conclusion is you're lacking the bacteria and or fungi to hold those nutrients in the soil. So you better get the bacteria and fungi back into the soil so you stop that leaching and we stop destroying water quality downstream from your um, from 
that place you're trying to grow these plants. We also know that bacteria and fungi are really good at setting up castle walls to protect your root systems, to protect the above ground leaf material, to protect your flowers, to protect your fruit. And that's Mother Nature's way of protecting any part of your plant by building these huge numbers of bacteria and fungi, many, many thousands of species present in those root systems or on your leaf surfaces or on whatever part of the plant you're talking about to protect that plant from the insect pests and from the fungal and bacterial diseases. The plant itself is putting out specific exudates specific kinds of sugars and, and proteins and carbohydrates to build that castle wall to protect itself. And of course, over the course of evolution, that plant has learned that when it puts out these kinds of exudates, then it's going to get these kinds of bacteria and or fungi growing, and it's going to get this kind of disease protection or this kind of increase in nutrient holding capacity in the root system. So there's a lot of communication and a lot of control by the plant of the kinds of microorganisms that are growing around its root system. Well, work by Joyce Loper, for example, at um, Oregon State University showing the huge specificity of its, this particular kind of food resource that's growing these particular species of rhizobium or free-living nitrogen fixers, and that's just one tiny, tiny group of uh, functional groups of, of bacteria. But people are starting to show these relationships and the plant is in control of what's going on around its surfaces. So we as human beings don't be, need to be out here sitting, oh, this poor plant, it doesn't know how to protect itself, so we're going to have to put this pesticide on. We're going to have to put this inorganic fertilizer on because the plant just can't do anything for itself. Absolutely the wrong attitude. We need to recognize the plant is perfectly capable of putting out the foods to feed these microorganisms. Our job is to make sure all those microorganisms are present in the soil, that they're functioning, and they're doing the work that the plant is putting the foods out to get those organisms to grow that will do that job. Now, I mentioned that um, bacteria and fungi are really good at grabbing and holding onto nutrients. When we were looking at bacteria and fungi holding onto nutrients in the soil as that nitrate molecule is moving towards the root system, the simple diffusion pulling it into that root, in fact, that nitrate molecule is going to go through this huge castle wall of protective bacteria and fungi. And in actual fact, the bacteria and fungi are going to take up that nitrate or phosphate or sulfate or chelated calcium, boron, sodium, all the other nutrients are actually going to be taken up by bacteria and fungi forming this castle wall around the plant surface, wherever it is. So now we have to ask the question of out in the natural world, how do we make that nutrient, whatever it might be, available again back to the plant? What is the process? Bacteria and fungi are accumulating all these wonderful nutrients in their biomass. Bacteria and fungi make a lot of enzymes that will solubilize phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, everything straight out of the sand, off the silt, off the uh, um, part of the clays, any of the rocks or pebbles, stones that are present in that soil, any organic matter. 
those bacteria and fungi can solubilize those nutrients and pull them inside their biomass. But now about the next step. How do you take the nutrients out of the bacteria and fungi and deliver them right to the doorstep of the root, hand it off to the plant, kind of like the pizza salesman or the pizza delivery guy coming to your door and delivering your pizza right there to your door. And how Mother Nature does that is to um, have protozoa and, and beneficial nematodes, microarthropods, and earthworms right around that root system, they come, they're attracted into that root system because of this huge concentration of the food that they eat, bacteria and fungi. And so they consume the bacteria or fungi because the carbon to nitrogen ratio of bacteria and fungi is um, so much narrower than protozoa or nematodes that the, when the predators, the protozoa, the nematodes, the microarthropods, the earthworms, eat the bacteria or fungi, there's way too much nitrogen or phosphorus or sulfur or magnesium, any of the nutrients, way higher in the bacteria and fungi than in their predators. So now when the bacteria and fungi are eaten by their predators, they release these nutrients right there at the surface of the root system in precisely the form of that nutrient that the plant requires. Nitrate, if you're a weed, you require a lot of nitrate. If you're a perennial plant, you, you require mostly ammonium. So what controls presence of a, uh, is it going to be nitrate? Is it going to be ammonium? And that, of course, are some really specific sets of microorganisms in your soil and whether they're functioning or not. So I'm not going to go into that because we get pretty complex. We, we put on, on classes, we teach courses where we go into that depth of detail about how we change um, organic forms of nitrogen into the inorganic plant available soluble forms of nitrogen who's controlling whether it's going to be nitrate, who's controlling whether it's ammonium. Well, if you think back through this a little bit, you realize it's the plant that's controlling all of these processes and who's functioning, who's actually doing all this based on the exudates that the plant's putting out. So it's the predators eating the bacteria and fungi that actually release the nutrients in a plant-available form. The plant's just sitting there going, thank you. That was very kind of you to deliver it to my doorstep. And the plant grows better. It's healthier. It's going to be resistant to disease because it's not stressed in any way for the nutrients that it requires. One of the problems that a lot of in the world of soil science you know, that people that haven't really understood, they weren't educated about this biology going on in the root system. Well, we, we didn't really have the methods to look at a lot of this until I finished up my PhD. We, we really didn't have the methodo methodology in hand to examine these processes going on. So you can't really blame, you know, um, people who were working in this area before, you know, 1981. We just plane didn't have the methods to look at this. Now we do. And lots of people are looking at them. And they're all seeing the same sorts of things. Do we have a lot more research to do? Yes. But um, pretty clear that the simple explanation that I'm giving here is basically happening in soils all over the world. So understanding all of that process, you've got to understand the full food web. 
bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, mycorrhizal fungi, earthworms. They're all playing a role and a part, and now we understand pretty well what these functional groups are and why it is you have to have all of this, these groups of microorganisms in your soil, or you're, you're going to be stuck having to use inorganic fertilizers and pesticides if you've killed this biology in the soil off. So to get to sustainable agriculture, we really have to make certain all these organisms are present in our soils in proper balances to grow the plant you want to grow. So can you spell out for us in a little more detail? I mean, it sounds like this is a chemically complex environment. One of the things that humans do is that we come in with uh, what we think is human ingenuity and we apply pesticides or chemical fertilizers or herbicides. And these chemicals that we're introducing into the environment naturally would have all sorts of impacts on either these bacteria or these uh, exudates that you described that the plants actually produce. Um, Do we have a good sense of how these different things are interacting, and are there different things that are interacting in different ways? Um, Is that allowing us to kind of put together more rational uh, pesticide application programs? Where are we, and where's the state of our knowledge on some of this? It's... um because of the methods that we've had in the past to look at biology in the soil um, were really methods that missed oh, pretty much all of the biology that's present in the soil. Think back to the example I gave you about the bacteria, where all the named species of bacteria that we could grow in petri dishes, we could grow in defined media in the laboratory, only numbered 5,000 species, a little less than 5,000 species. Um, and we list them all in Berge's manual. But when we start doing genetic sequencing of bacteria, what we start to find is that there are literally millions of species of bacteria. And so throughout the history of looking at soil in the history of agriculture, we've missed 99.9999999999% of the bacteria that are actually present in that soil. And when you're only looking at a teeny tiny portion of that community, um, you make some mistakes in assessing the effect of anything you're doing in that soil. So for a long time, people go out and till soil and they do plate counts, uh, assess the species of bacteria or fungi in that soil before they tilled, come in after they tilled, and based on a very specific medium grown at one constant temperature and one moisture and, you know, really restricted oxygen concentrations on the surface of that Petri dish, they would come to the conclusion that tillage didn't kill anything. Well, just think that one through for a second. Um, You've got a complex community, all kinds of different sizes and shapes of these organisms growing happily in the soil, fungi growing as long strands They can go for 100 feet. They can go for 300 feet through that soil. Now, come along with any tillage equipment that you want to talk about. What did you just do to that fungus? You destroyed it. Um, And yet we miss picking up those kinds of organisms on our Petri dishes because we've never understood the right food to feed those fungus. We 
I'll incubate those Petri plates for 24 hours or maybe if we're lucky, 48 hours. And that fungus requires two weeks to grow. It requires three weeks to start growing um, to the point where you and I might see it as a, as a colony. So lots of mistakes were made in trying to understand the effect of just tillage. Well, same thing for any pesticide that you want to talk about. We've just have not properly assessed the effects of any of these pesticides. Um, some pesticides are more toxic than other pesticides, and you know, and why anyone would suspect that that wouldn't be the case is just beyond me. Um, so, which pesticides are less detrimental and are going to kill less of the organisms that are out there? Um, which ones really destroy? huge quantities, almost all of the biology in the soil. And, and there are some um, rankings of pesticides, which ones are more friendly and with, which ones are more deadly. Uh, and um, you could choose always to try to choose the less, um, the less deadly, the a bit more friendly. But the fact is, every single pesticide that we have ever tested kills beneficial organisms and you're really setting the stage for the disease causing the pest organisms to come back because life history strategy on a pest or a disease has to be boom and bust. They grow extremely rapidly. They take over the plant. They suck the living daylights out of your plant, you know, turn it into mush, turn it into dead plant material, well, because that's what the pathogen needs to do in order to reproduce and grow and go off and infect more things. So very boom and bust kind of lifestyle. They grow very rapidly. They cause damage very quickly. Whereas if you're looking at a beneficial organism, they don't grow that fast because they don't take over your plant. They don't destroy, they must live in harmony with the plant. They're dependent on the plant to put out the exudates to feed them. So they are very much in balance with your plant. They're protective. They're at low numbers but constantly present. And so they don't have a boom and bust life cycle. They grow slowly. They may only reproduce a few times a year, but they're maintaining this constant relationship with the plant. We don't even know their names. We can't grow them on any medium known to man. Um, so when we're looking, using plate counts and so much of the soil biology work has been done using plate counts and absolutely, totally incorrect conclusions have been made based on that kind of methodology. Other methods, I don't know how much you would want me to go into some of the other methods that have been used in the past to try to understand soil biology, but massive and major mistakes in um, interpreting the information. If you look at CO2 being evolved from a soil, who's evolving that carbon dioxide? Well, it's all of the organisms present in the soil. Sometimes we can have such a massive growth of ciliates, bad guys, those protozoa that indicate that things are really going bad in your soil and you've got a plant that's just about to die, they can be producing so much CO2 that they are the major contributors to that CO2 being released from the soil around the root system. 
and you know um, soils people will in, in um, interpret more carbon dioxide being produced as this is a good thing because your biology is more active. Well, not when it's coming from an organism that is indicative of anaerobic conditions in that soil and those anaerobic conditions are producing the materials that will kill your plant. Your nitrogen's blowing off as ammonia. Fertility's going up into the atmosphere as greenhouse gases. Your phosphate's being lost through degassing. Your sulfur is being lost as degassing. You are making some of the most phytotoxic materials that will kill plants that we know of under those anaerobic conditions. And yet, if we're using CO2 and kind of mindlessly interpreting it that way, we're coming to the exactly the wrong condition. We're coming to exactly the wrong conclusion. Um, so you really have to go through the methods that have been used to assess soil biology and understand why they're inappropriate and why we've come to some really wrong conclusions about what's going on in soil. You have to be able to differentiate bacteria from fungi, from protozoa, from nematodes, good guy nematodes, bad guy nematodes, from earthworms, from microarthropods. They all evolve carbon dioxide, and they may mean bad things or they may mean good things. You can't mindlessly interpret CO2 evolution from a soil. Okay, um, what about... What about um fertilizers. I mean, the, I think with the case of pesticides, it's a lot more clear cut. Uh, with fertilizers, as you know, there are soils that for whatever reason just don't have a lot of the minerals that plants and other organisms need to grow. Uh, could you talk about fertilizers and when they are actually appropriate and, and when they are not? Okay. One of the things that I'm going I'm to have to kind of take a step back and make certain that you and anyone listening to this um, understand is that when we talk about fertilizers, we're only talking about soluble nutrients. We're not talking about the nutrients tied up in organic matter. We don't even touch those nutrients when we do a typical soil chemistry test. You don't, you, you basically ignore 99% of the nutrients that are actually present in your soil as long as we're actually talking soil you're missing most of the nutrients that are present. If you don't have any biology, you can't get those nutrients out of the organic matter. You can't get the nutrients out of the sand, sand and clay and converted into a form that your plant can utilize. If the only thing we're concentrating are the soluble nutrients, then you can, again, come to some real mistakes in understanding whether we need to put back in more nutrients or not. So when we're looking at nitrogen, take a look at your soil chemistry test. The only thing they're telling you about is nitrate and ammonium, NO3 and NH4. Those are only soluble forms. And those two soluble, leachable forms of nitrogen, which are the forms that plants take up, um, constitute typically in a soil they constitute less than you know 1% or you know less than 5% of the total nitrogen that is actually present in the soil that other nitrogen in your soil won't become available to your plant until you have the food web bacteria fungi protozoa nematodes the whole shebang 
So when we go into a soil and we measure the soluble nitrogen, we can say, oh, you don't have any, you don't have enough nutrients in here to grow the plant. So you're going to have to go and buy this fertilizer. So ammonium nitrate, very typical or thing that we put on calcium nitrate. Um, you know some of the different forms of nitrogen that can go on urea, for example, another one. All of those compounds, every single inorganic fertilizer is a salt. And that means a salt, the only thing that's required for a salt to be called a salt is that it disassociates in water. And it, the positive part of that ion, of that molecule, associates with the hydroxide part of water and the negative part of that salt associates with hydrogen. But you're taking water away from anything else trying to grow anything else in that soil. And so when you put on a huge concentration of salt at the surface of the soil, you're killing all these organisms that your plant depends on. So the first time you put out an inorganic fertilizer, you're going to kill almost all of the organisms in the top um, few um, inches of your soil. Well, then you till and you mix it and you're slicing and dicing more of your organisms, but now you're diluting out that salt effect. So yeah, the first time you put on an inorganic fertilizer, yeah, kind of hard to see any huge negative impact. It's when you come in with the next application. So pesticide comes along, you put on a pesticide and you're nuking another set of these organisms. And then you come along with another inorganic fertilizer application. And time after time after time, all of these insults eventually end you up with a soil that all your beneficial organisms are dead. They're gone. We've taken them out of the picture. All that's left are the disease-causing negative, um, the bad guy organisms are just about all that's left in our soil. So if we don't have the biology that can replenish this soluble pool consistently at small concentrations, low concentrations, which is what your plant requires, constant but low concentrations of the nutrients being provided to that plant right around the root system, then we get stuck having to put on these inorganic fertilizers, which are salts. And most of that inorganic fertilizer is actually going to leach out of your soil and end up causing problems downstream because they are soluble. They are leachable. And without the proper biology in your soil, you lose most of what you put on, waste of your money, actually, because you aren't going to be able to hold those nutrients in the soil. Get that biology back into the soil, and you would hold those nutrients. So can we use very low concentrations of these salts, putting it onto the soil and um, have the right biology there so eventually you wouldn't have to use inorganic fertilizers at all. You just get the organic matter content. You get the biology function the way it's supposed to. How long would it take? If you took a soil that was absolutely sterile, no beneficial organisms left in there, so well, maybe it's not sterile, maybe you just have the disease-causing organisms. How long would it take to recover and resuscitate that biology and get to the point where you really don't have to use inorganic fertilizers and you don't have to use those pesticides anymore? If you really know what you're doing, it takes uh, about two weeks. If you don't know what you're doing, it could take a couple years. So how fast can you recover and resuscitate and get to this point of truly sustainable? If you're monitoring your biology, 
it doesn't take long at all. You do have to have a source of these organisms, and most people grow their own organisms, their local indigenous organisms, by making compost. True, real, aerobic compost. By definition, compost is aerobic. As soon as your compost pile goes stinky, smelly, black in color, goes um, unpleasant, yucky, um, it's not compost. And we should stop calling those things compost because it doesn't have the sets of organisms that you need to put back into your soil and recover the fertility. That concludes my interview with Elaine Ingham. At least that concludes the first part of my interview with Elaine Ingham. Next week, we'll listen to the second part. And depending on how long that second part is, I will give the listeners an update on what the status of the podcast is, why I'm back podcasting again now, why I was away for so long. So I'm sure you're all at the edge of your seats uh, wanting to know the answers to these questions. But uh, you'll have to tune in next time to get those answers. Again, I'd like to thank Elaine Ingham for participating in this interview, and I'd like to apologize to her and to apologize to others who have participated in this program and have not yet seen their interviews published. Um, Those folks will be seeing their interviews published here very soon, uh, namely Dorn Cox and another interview with Repeat Agro Innovations podcast guest Walt Davis. So that will be coming up as well. Listeners who get this podcast through iTunes or who just use iTunes, could you let me know if iTunes is picking up on the feed for the Agro Innovations podcast and if it's, since it's been out of commission for a while, if it's now uh, publishing the new episodes of the podcast, I would appreciate it. Anyone who's acquiring the podcast through iTunes would let me know if that's working okay. And if not, I can get in there and fix it. The agroinnovations.com website has uh, gotten a little bit of a tune-up, and it's mobile responsive now. So if you want to get on there with your mobile device, whether that be a tablet or a smartphone, uh, it looks real nice on those types of devices now. So that's good. This and all episodes of the Agroinnovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. Next week, part two of my interview with Elaine Ingham. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.